we realized that if we really want to connect better with the external world and get better results, but also be more attractive and help also the external partners to get more out of a partnership, we need to change how we scout, collaborate, and then also incubate or execute the projects later on. Hey there, it's Yaniv, and you're listening to the School of Innovation podcast. My guest this week is Yulia Hitzbleck. Yulia and I talk about an article she co-wrote titled How a 100,000-Strong Company is Relearning How to Innovate. Yulia is passionate about experimentation. From lab to business, exponential technologies, open innovation, and digital transformation, especially in the health sector. Within corporate innovation at Bayer, she has focused the last few years on innovation culture change through building up a global innovation network, upskilling the organization on creative thinking, driving impact via the Catalyst Entrepreneurship Program, and is now running the co-working space and incubator of LifeHub Berlin. Here's my conversation with Yulia. Finally, how are you doing? Good. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's a pleasure joining your program today. Absolutely. Uh, pleasure having you back in school. <laughs> Interesting experience, <laughs> yes. So just to give our audience, our listeners some context, I came across a wonderful article that you co-wrote, which is titled How a 100,000-Strong Company is relearning how to innovate, and that company is Bayer. I reached out to you, asked you if you'd be willing to speak about this article and what was sort of going on in the background, and you generously said yes. So that's why we're here. We're going to talk about the article, but before we do, I want to talk about you, and I want to talk about your journey. Of course, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So you've got a very solid academic foundation, a master's and a PhD in chemistry from Syracuse University. Then you join Bayer. You hold a couple of pivotal roles in R&D. You immediately get into the roll up your sleeves R&D kind of stuff. But then in 2013, you leave that sort of behind and go into management slash leadership roles. So I'm interested in understanding more about that, the transition, you know, between roles and what maybe you took from each one of the roles going forward? Yeah, sure. So first of all, as a chemist, it's actually quite common that you start in R&D roles after your academic training. I also did a postdoc, so I really spent a lot of time in academia. And nowadays, I always joke that I really learned how to experiment First of all, in the lab, but it's also important to experiment in the business. What I took away from all the R&D roles is that quite often in companies, we still try to do tech push activities. But even though you try to test the market beforehand, quite often you're so focused on this is a great product. I want to make it work that you don't really listen to it. And a lot of innovations fail or don't really 
bring the desired return because the market is not ready, not just because the technology is ready. So I did have some leadership roles, of course, in R&D before leading a R&D department, but I was also missing a little bit the bigger picture. And that's why I actually changed into a corporate development role, also doing board of management support activities. And that really helped to understand a bit better why certain decisions are being made and why sometimes data is requested at short notice to <laughs> help the top management decide on certain investment topics quite often. Right. Do you miss the excitement, kind of the hands-on work of, of R&D? Yeah, sometimes I do, because in the end, if you work in the lab or if you have a team and you really develop stuff, you see progress right away. So it's very tangible either it works or it doesn't. Or if you work and try your product on the pilot production line or in production, you really see how things work. Yeah, that I do miss. Nowadays, I help more other colleagues figuring out how to develop their product and maybe on what topics to focus on first before running a lot of expensive experiments and then figuring out that uh, something much more crucial hasn't been clarified now. I still stay connected somehow to the people and the topics that matter in our business. Yeah. So do you think that coming up from the R&D gave you an advantage in your current role and what you're doing now, being able to guide the people sort of underground? Interesting idea. Yes, I do think as a scientist, you have really experimentation ingrained in your DNA. So it's, <laughs> yes. I mean, you would never make it through a PhD program if you're not failure tolerant, basically, because most of the time in the lab, right, you have a hypothesis. You think this is how it's going to work and you think about how can I test this? So it's quite natural that most of the times you actually get proven wrong because otherwise... You might think you're on the right track, but it doesn't turn out. So if we look into business experimentation, we talk a lot about failure culture and fail fast, fail earlier. And Because basically, if we go into marketing and sales and, of course, and also in engineering, you are so used to map everything out and plan and then execute that failure is not an option quite often. And I think for a lot of other disciplines, this is really a big challenge to relearn. Not every experiment goes as desired, but it's much more about learning than executing something. But really, I think it, the point that you're making here, which is super important, is you're reframing failure, right? And I like the acronym. I don't know if you heard this. FAIL is actually first attempt in learning. <laughs> yeah. It's an acronym, right? So you're reframing failure as a learning process, and I think that's key. The other thing I thought was interesting in what you said was like, when you were working as a PhD, R&D, you were doing innovation, but no one called it innovation or experimentation. It was like just part of the job. And then once you transition into corporate, all of a sudden this sort of thing that you were doing as a you know, it was inherent in your work. It's sort of a side effect of what you were doing is all of a sudden kind of put on a pedestal, right? It's like, what is this thing that you're doing? Did you get that kind of feeling as you were transitioning between the roles? Of course, it's a totally different world, right? If you're 
somewhere deep down in the business, and it doesn't necessarily have to be R&D, it can also be any other function, you're very deep into the matter, but you don't have this overview on why certain topics are being pushed more than others. On the other hand, if you're all the way at the top, you don't really understand necessarily the essence or importance of every single project, but you need the right KPIs basically to see, okay, where do I invest more money and which topics do I push further? So therefore, it's also really important that you have the right system set up in your organization to take informed decision on which topics to further support and not necessarily always go the nicest pitch deck or the best relation to somebody who's requesting money or other forms of support. Right. You're much more rigorous about how you, how you make decisions. I agree. So today you're the head of LifeHub, LifeHub in Berlin, and the director of innovation, again, the buyer. So what is that? What is LifeHub in Berlin? So we have a LifeHub network around the world. And what we do in LifeHub is mainly collaborating with externals all across the value chain. Since we are a very R&D-focused company, of course, for a long time, we had open innovation programs where we collaborated with universities, research institutes, but also other people, mainly in R&D. But we also realized that it's not only about R&D anymore. And also, if we work together with startups and we do have successful startup collaboration programs and G4A Accelerator, for example, you need a different mindset and the right setup to make projects actually work. So if a startup runs at like light speeds and internally you say, ah, maybe in three months there is a next touch point that is not going to work. So we realized that if you really want to connect better with the external world and get better results, but also be more attractive and help also the external partners to get more out of a partnership, we need to change how we scout, collaborate, and then also incubate or execute the projects later on. So in the Life Hubs, we do, of course, reach out a lot to the external world, but we also, especially the ones in larger sites, where we actually also need to do open innovation in our own company, because if you have 6,000 people, for example, in a large site, not everybody actually knows everyone. Right? So you need to connect the silos in the organization. And that's what we also started in Berlin. It's primarily co-creation space for internal people, but also connecting with externals. And it's the center of excellence for business model innovation. Because we realized that aside of the many programs that we have in the organization already, people actually need a lot more support and touch points, contacts to get help with also everyday projects where they are trying to think beyond the existing business models or need some additional inspiration and advice around topics from digital transformation, data science, or hands-on support, and how do you actually run the experiments, what is needed? Because that's not something that they know mostly out of their standard roles. Sounds like quite a challenge. Feels to me like you have to be very resilient, very versatile, right? You kind of spin at different speeds, like you spin at the speed of a startup and then at the speed of an academia and another corporate partner. So I'm curious, what kind of people work at LifeHub? 
<laughs> so of course we are all buyer people, so it's not necessarily a separate organization. <laughs> okay. On average, I would say yes, maybe we are a little bit younger than the average employee. We set it up in a way that we have colleagues who work in the corporate innovation team as I am, but also colleagues who drive digital transformation or who work in digital transformation innovation teams or AI lab or data science colleagues are situated there. And then, of course, we have people who just stop by and sometimes work from our offices to work in a different <laughs> crowd. But I made sure that like all the topics that are needed to maybe develop new business opportunities, open-minded colleagues who are actually also are there to generate content, whether these are small lectures or meetups, also do office hours for colleagues who want to learn more or need hands-on support their ongoing projects. So these people are sort of like subject matter experts that kind of contribute to the discussion of these different topics? Yes, I mean, everybody, of course, has their own projects going on, but they are open-minded and love to collaborate. So they're always open to also do something in addition to their standard list of projects that they are working on. And That's amazing. It's a nice, really nice atmosphere, really trying to change our culture a bit more and inspire other colleagues on possible outside and therefore also making it easier than to come into use. We also have spaces there for co-creation workshops to work with externals in a just different atmosphere, but still having either facilitation or the subject matter experts on hand or a lot of materials for more creative work than a standard board meeting room, for example. It sounds like a very generous environment, like people coming with a lot of generosity to give, to do, to collaborate. Yes, that's also part of the, the culture that we want to enforce there, because in the end, if you want to collaborate, you need to be open and generous and tolerant of other ideas to get the best out of it. And it's interesting to see how many people actually love joining activities, events, or just stopping by for a discussion and how different it feels to others in the organization. And I think we continuously grew our group of people who follows the events and joins and also contributes because that's the other part, right? Everybody has a lot of knowledge. It doesn't have to be the same group of people who always run sessions and shares. And especially in larger organizations, quite often we are focused on functions, departments who try to learn something new, but in the end, it could be relevant for a lot of other people as well. So we, we try to be as open as possible to leverage insights. So. What does a typical day look like for you or more importantly, maybe a non-typical day? <laughs> so if you say typical day now, while working a lot from home as well and not always <laughs> in the office, yes, we try to make it a ritual to at least meet at 9 a.m. for like a coffee and stand-up check-in with the team just to see, okay, how is everybody doing? What needs to be done today? And then it really depends. Many days we actually have now interactive virtual sessions before they were happening live in the hub around, I don't know, innovation methodologies, digital transformation, data science, culture change, whether it's really learning something new in terms of just really teaching or inspiration or 
hands-on application or a meetup discussion round. That, of course, needs to be prepared, but also the preparation and marketing up front and the consolidation of results and sharing later on. And personally, I also do a lot of coaching, mentoring of innovation teams, sometimes still quite early when they're looking more for problem-solution fit, helping them to set up the right experiments. That's a typical day. That's what's a non-typical day. (laughs) (laughs) Non-typical is probably when, when you sit in other long workshops that you haven't designed and to participate. Gotcha. Well, it's definitely a challenging time right now with COVID and working remotely. What's like your biggest challenge right now? And, and maybe if you found a way to overcome it and you're willing to share it with us. Ah, biggest challenge. I think with COVID, it might be even bit more strong than before. I think in general, the biggest challenge is if you're in innovation, culture change, and really trying to help people to work differently, it's the immune system of the organization. And you need to make keep in mind that change takes a very long time and that desired changes that might be very successful can also be reverted quite quickly. And it's always easy to get the innovators on board and maybe the early adopters who then work differently and speak positively about it, but then reaching more people is actually more difficult. And I feel now with COVID, everybody working from home, it's actually even more difficult to reach more people to push this change forward because you don't have the personal connection anymore. Everything is online. So people are busy being in video conferences all day anyway. So there's a bit of tiredness to do something on top. And I do see this in general. Also, if you work on projects and support teams, usually everybody is excited to join an innovation workshop, right? Especially if it's <laughs> working with sticky notes somewhere, everybody is super excited. But also later on, I mean, to a certain extent, people love to experience something new. So doing things on top is also okay. But usually there's a point in time where the normal business kicks in, needs more attention. And then often working differently is deprioritized. So a lot of these projects stall again. And while being in the office there, you have different means to connect with people again. If everything is done online, that's actually even more tiring. So I do see that people rather try to stick to their normal business routines because it's exhausting enough already to do this online all the time. Yeah, yeah. I hear that quite a bit and I think it part of it is that we still haven't really figured out digital and yeah. what digital means in terms of relationships and and working and there's a lot of thought leadership a lot of events around remote work and I assume that the whole thing is going to mature a lot faster than it would have without covid but yeah but we still need to figure that out and what it means for innovation I want to talk about the article. It's such a wonderful, wonderful article. And I'm not just saying that because I was pleasantly surprised. I was going into this as I was doing research for this episode. And I was thinking, okay, this is another corporate research article. I'm going to get the usual blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I was surprised that it wasn't at all like that. And there were a couple of things that I found really interesting And I want to ask you about them. 
But before we do that, I want to mention that it was written in April 2019 before COVID. Yeah. <laughs> which is important. And also credit your uh, co-authors. And I'm hoping I don't butcher any of their names, but it's Julian Birkenshaw, Enrique Di Diego, Monica Lessel, and Henning Trill. Yes, exactly. Okay, perfect. And we'll put out all of that in the show notes, but I just wanted to make sure that we credit them. What made you write the article? Of course, we went through a lot of learnings as part of our innovation agenda, which actually already started in 2016. And Julian Birkenshaw was also one of the advisors that we had in terms of culture change and how to drive innovation forward. So we really felt that this would also help other corporates because in the end, everybody's trying to get their organization ready for the future. And in the past, there was just more time to drive change projects. And somehow nowadays, everything is running faster and a lot of people are asking for support. So how do you actually do this? And even if we share our learnings, examples on how we made it work, and of course, we, we learned a lot more on the way that's written in the article, but we really wanted to inspire others and also maybe share some hints on how you can actually manage this, especially if you're a large organization. Yes. Well, you definitely inspired me. And I'm sure you're going to inspire a lot of people who listen to this podcast because there are a couple of really interesting insights in here. First of all is how you chose the right innovation model. And you talk about this agile network that was developed and was inspired by John Cotter's work on dual operating system. And for the listeners who don't know John Cotter and what that dual operating system is, it just basically means that it's a unique model where you separate kind of the two systems, the entrepreneurial capabilities of a network and the organizational efficiency of like the traditional hierarchy. Yeah. Why did you choose this and how did you build this? Maybe a couple of points. First of all, we are a very strong R&D-driven organization, and we wanted to bring to everyone's attention that nowadays it's not only about product design in the traditional way where guys in R&D develop something, and at some point it's handed over to marketing and product launch, and then that's the innovation. Now we also want innovation happening everywhere in the organization having people thinking about new business models, services, and not just physical products. And to get everybody engaged and also learn this, we needed to touch everyone in the organization. And we worked with a lot of very nice colleagues in the beginning of the innovation agenda to understand what are actually our strengths and what are our weaknesses. And of course, uh, if you work in life sciences, you need super good products, which are safe and reliable. And these were also traits that were mentioned many, many times. And we said, okay, we need to keep this. But at the same time, sometimes this rigorous testing and maybe also risk averse mindset, of course, gets into the way on developing new business models in a faster way. So we at the same time also needed to, to foster a culture where we are a bit more fast and agile and you collaborate across functions in a different way, not only the defined 
old R&D model where you drive the product development forward. And John Carter is really a wonderful change expert and the setup of taking the best out of your existing organization and putting people together in a loose network really resonated with us. And that's actually what we did then. We first, of course, worked with the innovators and change agents in the existing organization, but then also said, well, if we really want to change our organization with more than 100,000 people, a handful won't make a difference. So we really need to pick more people all across the organization who join this movement, who are part of this agile network, who then build additional connections and reach out to even more people, but still being connected and have a common mindset, motivation, purpose in driving this forward. We talked a little bit about culture in the beginning of the conversation, but the article touches a lot about that, but also in a way, part of that discussion on culture is very prominent, but some of it is kind of hidden sort of between the lines. And I want to maybe shine a spotlight on that. And specifically these like online idea forms that you've tried. One was in 2010, which was called Triple I, right? Inspiration, Ideas and Innovation, which didn't take off. Like you admit it. You plainly admit it in the article, which I thought was fascinating. And then the second one in 2014, which was called We Solve, and that's where you asked employees to contribute solutions to like very specific technical or commercial problems, right? Rather than, you know, come up with these very creative, unsolicited ideas. And I thought that was really interesting because it's a sort of a testament to like, you adopting a new culture of innovation as a learning process, right? You admit that the first experiment didn't take off, but you learn from it and you launch a new experiment, which is more successful. Was that always part of the culture or was that part sort of integrated as part of that reinvention process? I would say WeSelf was the very first step we took into changing the culture and connecting people and being more open also to sharing that in that case, you are an expert, but in that in a specific case, you don't have an answer and you're looking for support. What we learned from like the triple I initiative is that just ideas don't get you anywhere. I mean, there's a saying ideas are a commodity, right? And that paired with maybe poor execution processes on getting the ideas to the right, I don't know, right expert to maybe do something with it really generated a lot of frustrations. I mean, in the end, we still have a program for employees to submit ideas to improve certain activities and also get rewards for this. But we also had at the same time saying more and more people, oh, we are such a huge organization. If we would only know what we know and find the right people quickly, that would make us so much more powerful. And with the crowdsourcing platforms that became more popular around that time, we actually did have an opportunity to do this now. And therefore, we launched Resolve as a like seeker solver platform where any employee can actually share a challenge that he or she has. And we have uh, Resolve coaches in the organization installed who on the one hand help with describing the challenge also in a way that non-experts <laughs> can understand what is really the challenge. But the Resolve coaches were also our 
first network of change agents who went around the organization, advertised the program, were actively looking for challenges that existed in the organization where people probably didn't talk about. And while we started with more like technical focus topics, so saying, hey, I need, I don't know, we have this process and it's not working that well. Anyone has an idea on how to improve it. We quickly realized that also commercial problems or culture topics actually were super helpful to put on this platform. And quite often we see that the challenges are being solved by somebody on a totally different end of the organization. But since everybody not only stays an expert in one area, but usually moves around, even though you might not guess it from your current job title, people have a lot of expertise and actually the beauty of the organization. And it helped us a lot in opening up a bit more because before it was really, yeah, I mean, you're hired to solve a problem. So that's what you do. And it wasn't that normal to reach out to other colleagues, maybe at least outside of your own department, say, hey, this is what we're working on, any idea. Most of the challenge actually do get solved for at least a lot of hints and connections to solve it. And that pays for all the efforts that are connected to running the network and the platform in the first case. That's incredible. That's incredible. I know that in the article you mention also motivation and incentivizing people because whenever you have a crowd of people or you know such a large organization, 100,000 people, it's always a challenge to incentivize them to keep the ball rolling, right? The momentum. You talk a little bit about innovation bonuses. You tried and also didn't really work or achieved the expected result. And then you transition into qualitative metrics, right? Yeah. That kind of go into the, the performance reports. Yeah, there are definitely different aspects to it. So in terms of the VSELF model, for example, most of these solvers who actually go on the platform, look what kind of challenges are out there. They're not driven by uh, earned points necessarily. I mean, you do get credits on this platform, but it's more about the intrinsic motivation and solving a puzzle, collaborating with others. And that's definitely something super important to keep in mind. On the other hand, if you're in a performance-driven organization where everybody has targets and KPIs are being measured, just bottom-up intrinsic motivation will not change everything in the organization. So luckily, when we kicked off our innovation agenda, we had an innovation committee of senior leaders, and we also agreed on that senior leaders in the organization do get a goal in driving innovation in their respective organization. And since it's unfair to say in such a huge and diverse setup, you need to do X, Y, Z, that of course doesn't work. But if everybody has a goal of defining what are the key challenges in your specific organization and what set something up, join the innovation network to get more support in terms of programs and experts who can help you set up what you need for your specific challenges. That, of course, is much more powerful to build something that fits the local organization. But at the same time, it's also a tangible target for senior leaders to fulfill. Otherwise, it's sometimes also challenging to just build on goodwill. Yeah. Let's explore that a little bit further. 
because you build this entire reinvention process around people. It's heavily reliant on the people in the organizations. And part of it is finding and enrolling the right people, those ambassadors, those entrepreneurs. I want to know, I'm kind of curious, how did you find these people? How did you know that these people were the right people to help you get your task done, like to get the right impact? So first of all, even in a large organization, you do know the key innovators already. So that we, of course, screen for people who were already running innovation programs or had innovation in their job title and who were, I don't know, leading communities, whether this is more a bit in IT for digital topics or somewhere else in the different functions and divisions. And then we, of course, built on these people saying, hey, who else is around it? So we actually really spend a lot of time trying to map who is out there and who are also known leaders already who also have successful programs in place that we can build on because we also didn't want to reinvent the wheel, but rather say, okay, what is working in one division or in one country, for example, that we can build on and then roll out in the rest of the organization. So that was the first step, but of course, it's rather small number of people. And the second step then, when we decided to build this network, we said, okay, of course, these are people that need to be included, but we also wanted to make sure that every part of the organization is represented. So we asked the country heads and the global function heads at that point, that was also linked to the objective that we talked about before, nominate someone who is already quite senior, who you trust to discuss with your management team about the key challenges that you have in the organization and who's then the innovation ambassador, so the, the leader of the local organization who builds a roadmap, who discusses with the management team what needs to be done, what topics need to be addressed, and then works with innovation coaches that we nominated then to build the right formats to solve either business problems or inspire the organization. And of course, we described the roles and we sometimes recommended people already that we had on the radar, but it was also up to the business to decide. And actually, that worked out quite nicely because in the end, you always know who's in your local organization, who, who has the right spirit, who has good leadership skills, and who's open to try something new. Then for the coaches, there was also sometimes top-down that people were nominated or encouraged to take on this role. But by now, we have such a huge crowd of people that a lot of volunteers come up and say, hey, I really want to join the network. So we actually needed to be then more restrictive and say, okay, do you really know what this role is about? What have you done so far? And maybe work with some existing members of the network to see if this additional role is really something for you. And that got together the right group of people who wanted to drive change, who wanted to learn something new, who were super open to collaborate. So some selection process really is super important. And in the end, volunteers who really identify with the role are the right people to enroll. So that brings us to 2017. You launch a fund called Catalyst, and the fund provides professional support and money to explore larger business opportunities across the company. Are there any success stories that you can share with us? 
Yeah, there are definitely lots of success stories. Maybe a few words about the program. With the Innovation Network, we helped everyone in the organization to have coaches around who can run ideation workshops and problem-solving sessions to really trigger new ideas and solve challenges that we have with, I don't know, IT processes that are not working well or anything else to really solve problems quickly. But if you really try to develop new business models, just some problem-solving tools are usually not enough. So we looked into design thinking-based sprints that we uh, piloted or that we ran in the organization before, but also realized that lean startups, so this continuous experimentation and a bit more focus on business model design would make these programs so much better. So together with some of the existing programs, we set up this new type of Catalyst Fund, our entrepreneurship process, where teams are then guided over 12 weeks to really understand the business challenge, what are the customer's problems, and then use lean startup type experimentation to figure out what really needs to be done and not saying, I need money to then build an app, but really getting evidence together uh, what kind of support our customers really need or what else is needed to really solve the business challenge. And over the four seasons that we ran this program now, we had more than 400 applications of teams. And for the nomination or application process, we, of course, leveraged our innovation network. So that really helped us then also to gain scale. Out of the 75 teams participated in the program today, 29 actually passed over into incubation. So they had successful business models presented together with evidence. This is the risk already. And a few others were actually then continued by the business so that we have 25 out of these projects now either live or in a pilot or launch phase. And of course, some of the projects already make money. Since you were asking for a specific problem or a success story, for example, we had one team from Thailand who developed a drone spray concept now. Of course, Using drones to apply crop protection products is actually quite common already in Asia, especially in China and Japan. They're they're quite tech-savvy, so it makes a lot of sense there. However, if outside of this project, the team probably would have said, oh, they do drone spray, they sell drones in China, let's do the same in Thailand. But what the team figured out is that every country and every customer group is different. For example, in Thailand, where the plant jasmine rice, for example, the average farmer is more around 60 years old and definitely not so tech savvy. So launching a product where you say, hey, buy this drone and then you can spray your own fields would just not fly because they are are not equipped for this. What the team figured out as part of this Catalyst program, really working with a lot of these farmers in the area is that, of course, Not every or most of the people don't feel comfortable in buying and operating a drone, but of course they're super interested in getting the results by having using drones to spray their fields and apply the right amount of crop protection product. What they also learned is that in these communities, there are, of course, some people who have more experience or you have existing spray teams who still go around with a backpack and spray, which doesn't work for jasmine rice. But if you actually offer 
these sprayer teams the opportunity to learn how to use drones and then do this as a service that works out much better. So you now they're actually training spray teams how to operate these drones. Uh, and it's not only for specific farmers, but for the whole communities, they can leverage this. And they probably reach around 5 million smallholder farmers now supporting this solution. And that's now going live and actually generating revenue and not just an idea somewhere on paper or PowerPoint. <laughs> exactly. The idea is to get out of the PowerPoint and into the real world and make an impact. That sounds fantastic. There's so much more in the article that we can talk about. I will definitely put the link in the show notes and recommend that our listeners read the entire thing. If listeners want to learn more about Innovation at Bayer, where should they go? We shared quite a bit also in other conferences and publications. So if you search for it, we recently also did a nice webinar about our innovation journey, really from theory to practice. So if you're a practitioner already, search for the Strategizer chat webinar, Innovation Journey with Bayer. If you want to collaborate, maybe we have an open innovation portal called Innovate With Us, listing all our contact points and crowdsourcing activities. We also have an impact investment unit called Leaps by Bayer. They do really cool stuff building new ventures around breakthrough technologies in life sciences. And of course, we also have contacts on our normal corporate buyer website on the web. Or just reach out to me. I'm always happy to chat with you and see. Perfect. Perfect. I'll put all those links in the show notes. Julia, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank you, Jan. It's a very interesting discussion. Thank you.